Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When I talk about the Aino, especially my interest after the Meiji restoration, after the colonization board was established, I cannot really tell the story without having tears or getting too emotional because it's just so sad. So there is an image of the Ainu, like powerless people. But this is an interesting thing. In spite of all the exploitation and oppression and bad things happening to them, they survived and then they also thrive in spite of exploitation, oppression and everything else. Because the Ainu people are still living today and there is a lot of interest in Ainu tradition, Ainu way of life and Ainu everything. So the Ainu religion is an indigenous, naturalistic, animistic kind of religion. So they believe in all these things that exist in the universe. There is spirit in everything. Nothing gets wasted. So when I get salmon from a supermarket here, it is already cut nice and it's a skin and everything. But in Hokkaido, they would get the salmon and the head and tail may be used to make a broth. And then the salmon skin may be used for salmon skin roll sushi. There's a lot of attention in the Ainu way of living right now, respecting nature, living with nature, and keep everything in a sustainable way. That's very, very good thing that they're doing. And actually, there is ecotourism in Hokkaido that they would focus on that kind of ecological way of life and other things. So in that regard, it is definitely not a lost culture. It's unlost and winning, <laughs> winning culture, I would say. My name is Kinko Ito, and I was born in Japan. I have been teaching Japanese culture and society, along with other sociology classes, since 1982. In 2011, I had a sabbatical, and that's when I started studying the Ainu. These days, the popular notion of Japan in the West often includes an image of the brimming, technologically advanced metropolis of Tokyo and similar cities, alongside an image of seemingly subdued and contemplative traditions. And the country's history, as depicted in Western mass culture, seems heavy with fierce warrior samurai, as well as farmers and villagers living quiet, sometimes hard lives. But while even those simplistic, reductive ideas obscure the truth of how complex, complicated, and multifaceted the nation and its history really are, one specific piece of Japan's history and culture is perhaps even more unknown to many. This is largely due to a concerted effort to actually make it unknown and unknowable. The Ainu people of Japan's northern island of Hokkaido and the surrounding areas are an indigenous culture that predates even the idea of Japan itself. And while the nation they're now a part of has been hostile to them over time, and they now face conditions many indigenous people around the world face, as Dr. Ito said, they've not only survived, but thrived. Welcome to Lost Cultures, Living Legacies, a podcast from Travel and Leisure, 
I'm your host, Alicia Prakash. What can we learn about a place by delving into the people who once lived there? In what ways do cultures build upon each other as populations come and go? How do they complement each other, interact, and leave their marks on the people that come after them? And are cultures truly ever lost, even if the people move on? If you're unfamiliar with the Ainu, there may be a reason for that. As an indigenous culture, they faced oppression, discrimination, and forced assimilation by the nation that grew up around them. Unfortunately, this familiar story has, in recent years, left many Ainu struggling to retain and even relearn their own culture, while many other Ainu have chosen to essentially give up their culture to avoid discrimination. Despite all this, the Ainu culture still exists thousands of years after it first developed, and hopefully due to new developments, it will continue on still. In a moment, we'll explore the history of the Ainu people, but first, let's turn to Dr. Kinko Ito again for a quick lesson on who they are. Dr. Ito is a professor at the University of Arkansas in Little Rock with a PhD in sociology. She has produced two documentary films and written a book about the Ainu. The Ainu are the indigenous people of Japan. That is the official title that they got in 2008. I mean, they've been here for a long, long time, but it is only in the 2000s when the Japanese government recognized them as the indigenous people of Japan. And just to be clear, the Ainu are one indigenous group recognized by Japan. Another group is the Okinawan people at the opposite end of the country. So the Ainu are both a racial group and an ethnic group. In everyday conversations, we kind of use a racial group and an ethnic group interchangeably, but there are differences, okay? So a race is a group that has the same blood or same biological characteristics, basically. So we can talk about people with different skin color, hair texture, facial features, and so on. But race is also a socially constructed kind of thing. That is, if you think that you are of this race, then you belong to that race. So it is a little bit tricky, but the consciousness goes with the notion of race. Now, Ainu are also an ethnic group, and ethnic groups are characterized by cultural characteristics, okay, such as language, religion, food, and other things. So Ainu is not a monolithic group. We talk about the Ainu as if it is just one group, but they are not. So the Ainu people do not necessarily look like their fellow Japanese citizens. And unfortunately, as with many other places in the world, this alone can cause discrimination. But the Ainu are also culturally different than what many, if not most people think of when they think of Japanese people. To understand why that is, let's take a look at their history. 20,000 years ago or more, it is thought that a land bridge joined Siberia on the mainland of Northern Asia to what is now the Northern Japanese island of Hokkaido. The cold temperatures of Siberia are most likely what led humans to traverse that land bridge in search of a more hospitable environment to call home. Around 11 to 12,000 years ago, as the last ice age came to an end, a culture had begun to form among those migrants' descendants, a culture based around hunting, foraging, and fishing. 
This culture largely remained intact until about the 7th century, though, of course, still developing as all cultures do. And it is these people that the Ainu are descended from. So the Ainu people were isolated in Hokkaido and southern Sahalin and Creole Islands and so on. So Japan started to develop, and around the 6th century, the continental influence started to come to Japan. So the Chinese civilization basically comes through Korean Peninsula to Japan. The Japanese people start to develop some kind of culture, like rice cultivation, and technical people came from Korea as well, like weavers, craftsmen, pottery makers, and so on. So the Japanese culture started to develop at that time, while the Ainu people just remained pretty much the same. So around 12th or 13th century, the Ainu culture start to flourish, and then they started to develop. The Ainu people are an indigenous people of Japan, and they have been on the Japanese islands for as long as the islands have existed. This is Dr. Kirsten Jomek, an associate professor of history at Adelphi University with a PhD in Japanese history. The Ainu have their own distinct language. They have their own distinct religious beliefs. They have their own culture. They have their own oral histories. They have epic tales and myths. The Ainu people have their own weaving and textile. So if you think about each country's formation into a modern state, like the United States, you know, the United States wasn't always there. It it started with the colonies and then expanded west. So with Japan, everything starts in the central Honshu region and then expands outward to the outer islands. So the Ainu people in Japan, they had a distinct relationship with the Japanese over many centuries. Sometimes they were kind of like on equal footing. Sometimes the Japanese were trying to be more dominant. But what Ainu scholars really try to stress is that there is this long history of action and ability to move and protect their culture from Japanese invasion and colonialism. And so you can kind of see like two turning points in terms of the historical period, the Tokugawa period in 1600 to 1868, you have the Japanese forbidding Ainu to learn the Japanese language, making sure that they remain as distinct from the Japanese as possible. At this time, they forced some Ainu to become slaves and forced laborers and fisheries, and they were moving into the Hokkaido region. But this was not a period of absolute control, and you have Ainu leaders still maintaining their own way of life and culture. After 1868, which is officially when people think of Japan as modern, this is after the Meiji Restoration, after the abolition of all different social classes, there's no more samurai, everyone's a commoner. Hokkaido, which has always been seen as the land of the barbarians, or Ezo, it officially becomes part of Japan. It becomes naturalized. So it's part of the mythology of nation building in which, in fact, it was colonized, people were assimilated, their land was taken away, their hunting and fishing rights were taken away. All that happens, but in the vocabulary of the time, it's all about these common regions just coming together, being part of Japan. So what exactly is the Tokugawa period and Meiji Restoration? Well, first, it's important to know that while Japan has had an emperor since around the 7th century, the control that emperors have actually had over the country has not always been the same. 
At many points in Japanese history, these emperors and their families have been more or less only figureheads controlled by other non-imperial families. Specifically, from 1185 to 1868, Japan was mainly ruled by a series of military dictators called shoguns. Their official titles in Japanese translated to Barbarian Quelling Generalissimo and were nominally given to them by the emperors. In the year 1600, Japan had been ruled for nearly a quarter century by a pair of daimyo, or feudal lords, who weren't shoguns. But after a failed invasion of Korea and the death of one of these lords, Tokugawa Ieyasu came to power as the first of 15 successive shoguns of a new era. The 15th shogun in this line resigned in 1867, abdicating power to Emperor Meiji. And that is when Japan went directly from you know, feudalistic Tokugawa period into Meiji period. The emperor was restored and the last shogun, who was a 15th shogun, relinquished his power. So for some 260 years, the Tokugawa period lasted the feudal time. And the Aino people, actually, during that time, they were like sea traders and they went to Russia and China and other places trading seafood and fur and other items that were needed by these people, including the Japanese people in mainland Japan as well. So the Aino were very active as sea traders and were good businessmen and everything. But at the same time, when Meiji government took over, that's when the sad history of the Aino starts to begin. We asked Dr. Ito to tell us about the Ainu language, which is an important part of not only their culture and history, but also the way in which the Japanese sought to control the Ainu. The Ainu speak Ainu language, which is called an isolate language. That is, there are absolutely no relationships whatsoever between the Japanese language and the Ainu language, which is quite interesting, isn't it? But the Japanese adopted some Ainu words, you know, in their language, And then the Ainus also adopted Japanese words in their language. But other than that, there are absolutely no connections whatsoever. So there are Ainu people who live in the southern Saharan, which is the Russian territory. And then there are other Ainus who lived in the Creole Islands, and then also Hokkaido and the Tohoku regions. If you think of Japan on a map, the southern portion of the archipelago is just southeast of the Korean peninsula. From there, they stretch and curve north and further east. Hokkaido, where the Ainu are mainly concentrated, is the large island at the northern end of this curve, just north of Honshu, the main and largest island of Japan. Tohoku is the northern region of Honshu, the part of the island closest to Hokkaido. Meanwhile, the Russian island of Sakhalin is just 40 kilometers north of Hokkaido, a 948 kilometer strip of land stretching north off the coast of the Russian mainland to its west. And stretching northeast of Hokkaido are the Kuril Islands, also mainly Russian, though Japan does have a claim over the southernmost portion. Now, back to Dr. Ito. Regionally, the Ainu language differs, just like English is not the same here in the United States. Like somebody coming from, say, Boston or Chicago or California or Atlanta, they all speak different versions of English or American English, I should say. So the Ainu people are not monolithic regarding the language as well. So depending on which region you're talking about, 
the vocabulary could be slightly different or they may not understand certain words or certain expressions and so on. Also, they did not have a system of writing and that really contributed to their disadvantage because in order to do modern day education or business, you need to have written language, you know. So they have a great memory because everything had to be transmitted orally, but the fact that they did not have the written language was detrimental. And the Ainu never ever formed a nation because they did not need to have a nation because they lived in nature. So the Ainu language was transmitted in epics or storytelling, ballads, poems, and other forms. Okay. But in 1869, the Japanese government decided to set this Hokkaido Colonization Board to develop that area so that we could talk about civilization, modernization, and everything modern and great. But to the Ainu who were living there, it was nothing but exploitation, oppression, and the end of paradise for them. There were other international powers who were interested in Hokkaido, in addition to Japan. Japan claimed Ezo, the old name of Hokkaido, long, long time ago, but Hokkaido was strategically located. So Russians were coming down to look for non-freezing ports, and then there were also Americans, Dutch, British, French, you know, all these world powers were interested in Hokkaido, and the Japanese government did not want to have Hokkaido become a colony of one of these countries. Because the Ainu people could just kind of gang up with the Russians and say, well, we're not Japanese. We're, you know, Russia, for example. So they started to set up this colonization board. And then they started very, very rampant, very strong assimilation policies. And one of the policies was the prohibition of the use of the Ainu language. It's one thing to claim a territory for strategic purposes. It's entirely another thing, though, to try and force the people in that territory to completely assimilate. What motivates any world power to exert such destructive cultural dominance? And why, specifically, was it so important to the Japanese in the 19th century that the Ainu assimilate? Let's now turn back to Dr. Zhomek. In terms of why did the Japanese force the Ainu to assimilate and try to become so-called Japanese, just think about the larger context, which is this is the age of imperialism. The Western countries have encroached upon Africa. They're coming towards Asia. China is about to fall. Other areas in Asia are falling under different European forms of control. When the Americans come to Japan, they're at risk of being taken over in 1853, and the Japanese decide to westernize. They're going to modernize everything, have Western laws, Western institutions. They're going to model the military, the army, the navy on the best militaries of Europe. So they're doing this westernization process, which is meant to ensure that they are safe from colonialism. And part of that westernization involves imperialization. They're going to take over other parts of the world and also have an empire so they can be on equal footing of the British, the French, the Germans, and U.S., which is also an emerging empire at the time. So during the time of Japanese empire, which most people date around 1868 to the end of World War II, they look at Hokkaido and Okinawa 
as the first parts of the empire. And during that time, the Ainu faced discrimination, they faced assimilation, they faced being, you know, turned into spectacles. As the Japanese build their empire, they also have this sense of racial superiority, that they are more civilized, they're better capable of helping, you know, backward peoples like the Ainu or like the Taiwanese or the Koreans to make them into modern subjects of the empire. So in 1869, the Meiji government established the Hokkaido Colonization Board so that Japan can claim Hokkaido is Japanese territory. Now, the Japanese government prohibited fishing salmon in the rivers and then prohibited hunting deers in Hokkaido. Now, the Ainu people, their staple food is not rice like other non-Ainu Japanese people. Their staple was salmon and deer. I actually heard about this when I was visiting a museum in 2011. This person who took me to the tour of the museum said, when you cannot catch salmon or kill deer, what it meant was death to the Ainu because these were their staple food. And he had tears in his eyes and that really made me feel so emotional, you know. The assimilation policies that the Meiji government imposed on the Ainu were pretty harsh. So number one, they could not speak their own language. And so at this time, they're forced to learn the Japanese language. They're encouraged never to speak Ainu at their house or in school. Some Ainu are segregated in Ainu-specific schools. And then number two, they had to change their fashion. So the Ainu men used to wear pierced earrings. That was prohibited. And then Ainu women used to have tattoos around their mouth. Ainu women will tattoo their hands and they will have a tattoo above their upper lip, which signify marriage rituals and coming of age. And that was a symbol. There was a significance in that. And then the Japanese government said, "Mm -mm, that's prohibited because it's barbaric. So the Japanese government had to do some kind of impression management because Japan was now changing, okay? It was getting more industrialized, modernized, and there were so many Europeans, the Britons, French, Germans, Italians, and Americans coming to Japan to teach the Japanese new technology. And then the Japanese government also built all these fantastic Western-looking dance halls and other buildings to impress these foreigners that Japan is a modernized nation, which is different from the other Asian nations. So in that kind of huge wave of history, the Ainu people were discriminated and mistreated and so on. And one example is fishing. Ainu people made a lot of money and then they became rich by doing trade with all these people in Russia and China and other parts of Japan. But later on, the Tokugawa government, again, said that only the Matsumae domain, which is in Hokkaido, can do business with the Ainu. Domain is just like the statehood here, okay? So the Ainu have to go deal with these officials in the Matsumae domain to do business. And one of the things was that they would have fisheries, and then they would let the merchant manage the fisheries because the ex-samurais are not as good as managing all these people, but merchants were. 
So the merchants would take over and then they abused the Ainu people. So they would recruit the Ainu people from all these villages, especially young men. So whoever can work, they would be taken away, whether it is in fishery or forestry or whatsoever. And the villages or the communities only had women, children, and older men and women. The younger people were recruited to work in these places to contribute to that maximize finance, right? So the men had to work, and then it was very, very harsh and When the Ainu people wanted to revolt against the people, I heard this story that uh, somebody's grandfather, he did not want to obey what the Japanese boss told him. They were doing forestry, you know, cutting trees and so on. And then the Japanese boss cut off his fingers as a punishment, for example. And then there were women who worked and some of them were used as the Japanese men's local wives, you know, wives in quotation marks. Basically, you know, they were used as sexual slaves and so on by these Japanese men who worked there. So starting with that colonization board, once it was established, the Ainu people started to to suffer from exploitation and oppression In the name of Japanese modernization process, we have to become modern and we have to become world power and so on. We'll be back with more after the break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Alicia Prakash, and you're listening to Lost Cultures, Living Legacies, a podcast from Travel and Leisure. From 1868 until present, the Ainu have had varying degrees of assimilation. At this time of assimilation, they're talked about as primitive, they're talked about as backwards, their culture has no value. And this is when you have a variety of Ainu responses. You have some Ainu leaders who stand up and they assert the value of Ainu identity. They assert the value of Ainu people distinct from the Japanese. And then there's others who want to assimilate, who learn Japanese. It's during this period, as the newly modernized empire of Japan enters the 20th century, that the Ainu on Hokkaido begin to attract tourists and other people from outside Japan interested in seeing how they live. But as Dr. Jomik explains, this interest also helped to, in its way, spread the idea that the Ainu were disappearing. So in terms of this myth or this idea that the Ainu people are dying or that they don't exist, I mean, this is kind of a motif that you see throughout Japanese history. And it really took force during the age of imperialism, so early 20th century And when the first tourists are going up to Hokkaido to see these Ainu villages, it's always kind of couched as, you know, a dying race. Soon they're going to fade away and disappear. And so you have researchers coming in in the early 20th century 
They're going to measure them. They'll measure their heads. They'll take their blood. They'll photograph them very clinically and talk about them as they are objects. You have tourists from Japan, tourists from Europe, from America coming, and you have all these combination of factors. People coming to look at you because you're Ainu, the Japanese state actually saying this culture has no value. And then you also have tourism, which is also contributing to the idea that the only value they have is to be on display. And then the display of the Ainu is problematic because it presents them as being in the past. They're in a static position. That was then not accurate. And today it's not accurate. But what helped feed into that was various factors. One, these campaigns of assimilation, you know, don't speak the Ainu language, don't practice Ainu culture, don't wear Ainu kimonos, present as Japanese. So you have this kind of forceful idea that if you remain Ainu, you are backwards, that you're of the past. And so it's really remarkable that in spite of that, that you have several Ainu leaders and communities that still maintain the value and they did not assimilate. But the forces trying, just the attempt to try to assimilate, that's really strong. And then in combination with that is when you have more Japanese coming to Hokkaido, you have a lot of interracial relationships. You have the kind of phenomenon that you would also have in the United States of passing where light skin African-Americans chose to present or be part of the white community because there was less discrimination. And so you have Ainu of a mixed racial heritage who also would pass as Japanese or they would keep their racial heritage a secret from their grandchildren or their children. And then as far as what does the culture look like today, again, in the 1990s and 2000s, you had attempts, especially a lot of young Ainu activists who tried to change the perception of the Japanese people and the Ainu people. So you have this Ainu rock band that formed, and they would wear Ainu traditional clothing and they would incorporate Ainu lyrics into their songs. And it really made a kind of splash because it was like, wow, you know, really forcing people to see Ainu people as real people who live in the world. And yes, they like rock music, but they're also celebrating the culture. You have Ainu restaurants in Tokyo or Osaka that open up. So there's an attempt of various Ainu individuals to kind of showcase Ainu culture proudly and they talk about it. And then you have traditional older ways of thinking about being Ainu. You know, they still permeate certain communities. Let's now pull out from the historical timeline for a moment to acknowledge the long-term effects of Japan's westernization and imperialism on the Ainu. Part of the drive for assimilation is part of this history of empire. Another part is this idea of not recognizing the inherent value of the Ainu people and their culture. And at the time, there is no concept of indigenous people. Part of the struggle of the Ainu people is having the Japanese state and the people living in Japan to recognize the value of indigenous people. And on the world stage, on the global stage, the Ainu as indigenous people, they participate in the United Nations. They collaborate with other indigenous groups in Australia, all across the world. But within Japan itself, there's this slow kind of acceptance of, you know, we have different cultures in Japan. 
today, you know, the Ainu are often ignored in the history books, or if they're taught in Japanese schools, it is this like short paragraph about the dying people. But because of this reluctance to admit fault, and a lot of that has to do with the Japanese government not really acknowledging the harm that they did, and that also extends beyond the empire to World War II. But that lack of responsibility today makes the Ainu in this kind of precarious position where they do need people to value them and see them as distinct from Japanese. But they are Japanese citizens. They are a part of Japan. And what they have to do with the balance between is how they showcase Ainu culture so people learn about it, know about it, but they do it in a way that doesn't fetishize it or make it an object of the past because they're living people. But luckily, I see what's happening now as trending more positive in terms of there are people wanting to learn the language, weaving techniques or the oral histories to kind of keep it alive. So when you go to Hokkaido, we would expect some kind of a reservation-like place where the Ainu people are the majority or they're living by themselves and stuff like that. It's not really like that. Even though there are a couple of communities where there are Ainu people who are the majority, one of them is Nibutani, where I went to for my movies and my research. And in Nibutani, the majority of the residents are Ainu. So when I interviewed these people, they have wonderful experiences because the Ainu are the majority there. So it is quite different, you know, depending on which community you go to. But basically what this Ainu man told me was like, Kinko-san, would you please tell your American student that we live in a house, we drive automobiles, we use computers and cell phones. I don't want to give your student the idea that I know people are still living in homes with thatched roof or getting water from the river or something like that. No, they live exactly like anybody in Japan now. Very modern people. They do use technology and everything else. So that's one thing that he wanted me to emphasize because a lot of times we do have this visual image of Ainu people wearing their own clothes with beautiful embroidery or the headrest here or the headband, but they're not. They do it for occasions, you know, for festivals and family gatherings or other things, but not for every day, you know. So there is an image problem. Some people, Ainu people did tell me that there are problems with like marriage, okay? And there's a problem with family and also at school and at work and some other places. So the Japanese are not really blatantly violent against these other groups that they hate. But when it comes to the Ainu, especially in Hokkaido, there are bullying problems at school. So they lag behind. But nowadays, there are certain support groups, you know, like tutoring or after day school and other things. So regarding all these things, I think it is great because if there is a problem, then there is a remedy that you can find these days. But a lot of I know people do not go to universities. So when we think about that education is the key to your success, a lot of times, if you are discouraged to go to school, partly because of bullying or partly because of academic achievement, then it's very difficult. Also, poverty is another thing. 
in order to get education, you need money. So a lot of Ainu people tend to be on social welfare percentage wise than the non Ainu Japanese in Hokkaido. And let's not forget what Dr. Jomik explained earlier in the episode about the way in which many tourists and researchers have literally objectified the Ainu since around the early 20th century. This has often resulted in a fetishization of their culture that's effectively attempted to freeze them in the past or denied that they can be a part of the modern world. The Ainu people have had to overcome all of that. And today, I would say there is this careful balance of cultural preservation, tourism, and relearning Ainu culture that is occurring. So museums are looking to have Ainu curators looking for Ainu members of the community to give feedback on how the exhibit should be, to have Indigenous people like the Ainu actually participate in recreating the textiles or the crafts so they can relearn the traditional techniques. And so what I think about the Ainu people today is that there's still this stigma of being different, of not being Japanese. So some Ainu do not visibly present or say that they're Ainu. But others do, and it's just a matter of navigating the differences between how people feel about their culture, because it's a very complicated history. And Dr. Ito has some specific insights based on the Ainu people she spoke with for her documentaries about how the historical bans on their language and other parts of their culture have affected them. The Ainu people could not speak their own language And language is very, very important for our identity, our self-consciousness, and everything else. And they could not. And the people who were in my film, there were only a couple of people who spoke the Ainu language. And one is Mrs. Kibata. She was prohibited by her parents to speak Ainu language. But of course, her Ainu grandparents spoke Ainu language among themselves. They would love to talk because they are very comical people sometimes and they have great stories to tell. So Mrs. Kibata could listen to her grandparents, but she was prohibited to speak. So when she was like in her 50s or 60s, she started to learn the Ainu language. So she was a student and she was a novice, but she could remember her grandparents speaking. So she picked it up. So she eventually became an instructor of Ainu language. And there are, you know, Ainu language schools now in Japan. There are several in Hokkaido, of course, and other places. And I think that's one of the greatest things because language is culture and language is very, very important as a tool to transmit that tradition from generation to generation. As you may remember Dr. Jomik mentioning earlier, though, the Ainu are, of course, not only in Hokkaido. They are a modern people, and many live in metropolitan areas. Dr. Ito has further insight. There are said to be like several thousand Ainu people living in the Tokyo metropolitan area. And the reason why they prefer living in the metropolitan area near the capital is because there's more diversity in Tokyo, obviously. So they're not only non-Ainu Japanese, but they're Ainu people and also Europeans and Asians and Latinos. And there are people from all over the world in Tokyo area. It is very, very diverse. So they can mix in or fit in a little bit better than somewhere else when they might stand out because of their facial features, for example. 
keeping in mind that tourism has been something of a double-edged sword for the Ainu as an indigenous people, as they balance their place in the world at large today with attempts to retain a cultural identity with traditions rooted in the past. What are some recommendations about how to interact with the Ainu culture responsibly? There are Ainu centers in Tokyo and Sapporo and some other places and museums that do have Ainu exhibits. But if you really want to go deep into the Ainu art, craft, and food and other things, I think the best place to go is Hokkaido still. I would recommend people to go to Sapporo and then there is Hokkaido Museum. And also, when you go to Bilatori, there's Aino Culture Museum and then the Sad River Museum of History, right next to each other. And then about five minutes away, there is Shigeru Kayano's, his private museum, too. There are also another one in Akan, Akan Ainu Kotan, Kotan means community. And actually, there are 120 Ainu people living in that village area. And there are restaurants, craft shops, and so on, as well as a theater where they do singing and dancing. So there are certain places where they focus on the Ainu tradition and history and everything. And that's going to be very educational. I have several recommendations in Hokkaido. The first is Nibutani. And Nibutani has traditionally been a region that has a high population of Ainu people. And it has a lot of current Ainu leaders who are in control of not just tourism, but also the town board, the school board, part of the fabric of town life. Their family history goes back generations. So they've really taken a concerted effort, not just to create beautiful museums that showcase all these amazing Ainu artifacts and objects and textiles, and you can learn the history there. You can also see a recreated Ainu house. And if you're lucky, you might get to witness some sort of Ainu ceremony. And then I would also recommend Asahigawa, which is also has a high population of Ainu. They have several museums and they also have a museum. The current person who runs is a descendant of the original Ainu founder. So it's very rustic and it's about two rooms. It's not a flashy building at all, and it's amazing. Dr. Jomek was in touch later to let us know that she was referring to the Kawamura Kaneto Ainu Memorial Museum in Asahikawa. Then you also have in Asahigawa the official city museum, that within the city museum you have exhibits that have Ainu artifacts on display. And one of the Ainu scholars I met in the city was really proud of this museum and the Ainu's involvement in making it what it was. The last place I would recommend is Shiraoi, just because it is the largest Ainu museum that you would see in Hokkaido, but you would go there with a kind of understanding of a complicated history. Shiraoi is perhaps the most famous Ainu destination pre-modern you know, modern times. So right when railroads get developed, late 19th century, early 20th century, tourism is booming. There's tour books about visiting the Ainu villages. Shiraoi is one of the first to put it really on the map. Today, that is where the National Museum of Ainu Culture is. And, you know, there has been some criticism that the Japanese state who has been responsible for colonialism 
and derogatory assimilation policies and taking away their land, dispossession, taking away fishing, hunting rights would then be the ones who are exhibiting Ainu culture. There's a little bit of a dissonance. However, depending on who you talk to, the value of the state recognizing the Ainu in this way, I mean, it's really huge. But if you don't really know much about the history or you're trying to look for some sort of mythical creature like the unicorn, you know, like the way that you talk about it, you know, I want to see an Ainu person or I want to see that, you know, if you change that mindset and you kind of just think about, I want to learn about this culture and understand this history in which the people have survived. And I say that because a lot of histories of the Ainu people always talked about as oppression, subordination. And for sure, there is a lot of negatives about the past history. But what I try to do in my own research and in my book is show that despite oppression, despite the obstacles or hurdles that you face, I knew people had a gamut of choices and opportunities to live and survive. And some did better than others, but there's this richness in how they lived the variety of interactions that they actually had. You can see the Ainu as individuals and as people. And I think that's important. I think the value of Ainu museums or destinations in Hokkaido where you can learn about Ainu culture and the people, the value lies in being able to recognize the complicated history of how nations or countries are formed. And that within a kind of framework where people often see Japan as homogeneous, they always think, oh, anyone who lives in Japan is Japanese. You need to learn about all the other people who were in Japan, who've become a part of Japan over time, and how they shaped the region. So it's not a matter of what the Japanese did to these indigenous groups, but how these indigenous groups interacted with the Japanese in order to create how things are. And I see the value in these institutions as slowly helping the Japanese government kind of come to terms with its colonial past. Hopefully there will be a day in which I knew and the word discrimination don't often go together. You know, you often talk about issues of identity or belonging in Japan. And when you start talking about indigenous people, or you talk about the Ainu or the Okinawans, oftentimes it just automatically segues to the past. And the goal isn't to erase the past, but the goal is to move forward to a place of acceptance of what was done in the past, that that was wrong, and that how we treat people who are different from what we stereotypically think represents Japan is important that, that we recognize Japan has this complicated history. It has a diverse population, not as diverse as the United States, but there are populations within Japan that are not as represented and they suffer from discrimination or negative attitudes. And I just think that the importance for these institutions is helping everyone kind of be aware that the Japanese history is complicated. Thank you to our guests, Dr. Kinko Ito and Dr. Kirsten Jomek. Be sure to follow Lost Cultures Living Legacies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
And we'd love your feedback. If you could, please rate this podcast and leave us a review. We'd really appreciate it. You can also find us online at travelandleisure.com slash lostcultures. In our next episode, we'll explore the Tongva people and culture indigenous to the Los Angeles Basin. We hope you'll join us. Lost Cultures, Living Legacies is a production of Travel and Leisure and Dot Dash Meredith. I'm your host, Alicia Prakash. Lottie Leigh-Marie is our executive producer. Jeremiah McVeigh is our writer and co-producer. Dominique Arciero is our audio engineer and editor. Stacy Leska is our researcher. Kyle Avalone is our fact checker. This episode was reviewed by Brian Ahern, a panelist on Dot Dash Meredith's Anti-Bias Review Board, as well as Mackenzie Price, Director of Anti-Bias Initiatives. Jennifer Del Sol is Director for Audio Growth Strategy and Operations at Dot Dash Meredith. Nina Ruggiero is Digital Editorial Director for Travel and Leisure. Maya Catru-Levine is Luxury and Experiences Editor at Travel and Leisure.